This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 30, and this week, uh, exciting stuff. I've got an interview with an actual, genuine, real life philanthropist. Um, so, yeah, for the podcast this week, I spoke to Fran Perrin. Uh, now, Fran is actually um, one of the Sainsbury family, so they're a, a long and storied family of uh, philanthropists here in the UK, uh, and I became uh, aware of Fran and was put in touch with her uh, via Rachel Rank at 360 Giving, who regular listeners may remember I spoke to a couple of weeks back about open data and philanthropy. Uh, now, Fran is the original founder of 360 Giving. She also has a foundation called the Indigo Trust that she runs with her husband William Perrin um, and she has a very strong and long-standing interest in technology and kind of uses of technology to try and uh, drive social good and improve lives for people and, and communities particularly in the developing world um, and she in previously has worked and as an advisor within the UK uh, government um, so she has an interest on the, the policy side as well um, and we had a really interesting chat. So we talked a bit about um, her work with 360 Giving and her interest in open data, more broadly her kind of interest in the transparency agenda and why she thought that was an important uh, way of driving uh, necessary change in the world of philanthropy. Um, I talked to her about some of the barriers she'd faced in terms of driving that forwards. Um, I thought we also talked about uh, some of the limitations around technology um, as a tool for, for driving social good. Um, we also talked about a lot of the kind of key issues around philanthropy that we've covered before on, on this podcast. And it was great to get the perspective of a, um, a, a real genuine philanthropist about this. So we talked about um, the role of philanthropy as a source of risk funding, um, the power dynamics within philanthropy, uh, and also the question of whether philanthropy, and particularly foundation philanthropy, uh, is more able to take a long-term view of issues and whether that was one of its genuine strengths. Um, so hopefully, you know, have a listen to the conversation. There's lots of really fascinating stuff in there. I'll come back at the end to do a bit of housekeeping. Um, but other than that, let's get on with the conversation. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, Fran, for agreeing to to come on the podcast. It's I'm really looking forward to to having this this conversation. Um, I think maybe the the best place to start is if you just give a bit of background in your own words to kind of who you are and what your interest in philanthropy is. Sure. Um, well, I'm a philanthropist. It's a slightly strange job, and I'm still getting my head around what it involves. Twenty years into it, uh, I was very privileged aged 18 to inherit wealth uh, and with it the, the the responsibility to as I thought do the most good with it that I could um, I'm part of the Sainsbury family which has a, a, a long tradition of philanthropic giving and we have 17 different family foundations 
uh, of which mine, the Indigo Trust, is one of their youngest ones. I set it up when I turned 18 and didn't really know what I was doing or what my focus was going to be. And like much, like most 18-year-olds didn't really know what I was doing in life. So it took me a few years of, of stumbling around to find my focus. And the Indigo Trust now focuses on technology for uh, social change, but with an emphasis on anti-corruption work, good governance and citizen empowerment. And we fund almost exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa in several different countries. It's taken a while to find that focus, uh, but it's really helped me to put in place a strategy for the work. We also do a lot of work on technology for opening up and modernizing philanthropy in the UK, which we call Open Philanthropy. And that led me to start the campaign for 360 Giving. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to, to pick up on there. It's really interesting, um, I think, uh, that you kind of, as you say, came into this from a, quite a rich philanthropic background. And, and given that, though, the and fitting into the sort of wider context of all the Sainsbury family um, uh, uh, charitable trust, it's fascinating that the, the areas that you've picked to work on, I think, specifically around transparency and particularly the kind of use of technology to drive that can you say a bit more about kind of what you your theory of change i guess for for want of a better phrase is about why you think transparency is a really important tool for um driving social change forward and also kind of why you think technology perhaps is one of the best tools to use to achieve that sure i think the focus on technology came for me um, because it took me a while to realize that there isn't a single answer about what is the most important thing to fund, the most important problem to solve. And for years, I agonized trying to work out the answer to that question. Should it be cancer research or human rights? Or There are so many problems that need solving and so many organizations working on them. I didn't know how to choose the most important one, but I did believe that having some kind of focus was essential to having impact. And in all, it, it took me ages to work out that there wasn't a right answer, but that I needed to be the most informed donor I could if I was going to have impact beyond just signing the checks. So I decided that I would be the best donor if I knew my subject. And I can't tell you the difference between a good anti-malaria project in a bad one but I know technology because I'm a geek and a nerd and uh, in my day job had been a strategy and policy advisor in the cabinet office doing a lot of work on technology policy and when I had that realization I finally got some confidence to go no no this I know what I'm talking about I know the policy areas I know the legal issues um, and I know what it's like for the really innovative charities that are trying to use technology it's not about saying that technology is always the right answer. In fact, in many cases, it's completely the wrong answer. But these days, if you're not looking at the potential of technology in solutions to social problems, then you're probably missing a trick. So um, I felt that my personal and professional knowledge would me make me be a far more strategic donor. The work on transparency partly came from having worked with lots of really talented activists and civic technologists in the UK and being inspired by their work. But in many ways, it's not about transparency at all. It's self-interest. 
when I started out as a philanthropist, I couldn't work out what other people were doing. And I wanted to learn. And I wanted to ask other donors questions about how they picked their focus or how they did due diligence. And despite being in a family with lots of philanthropists, I found it really hard to find the answers. So it was a self-interest of, I want to know what other people are doing so I can learn from them, I can collaborate with them, and I can get better at my job. So it's much more for me about making informed choices. And I don't see how that can be a bad thing. I often use the analogy that you wouldn't try and do financial investments without any information, with no FTSE 100, with no Reuters. Philanthropy can feel a bit like giving in the dark. And I just want us to have better information so we can make the best decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's two questions that immediately occur to me out of that. One is, um, obviously, for you sort of said for, for almost reasons of enlightened self-interest, given the challenges you found finding information for your own philanthropy, transparency made sense. But it's not a, a, an unproblematic thing to try and fund in the world of philanthropy, and particularly kind of foundation philanthropy. I mean, there is a perception or an ongoing criticism that it is a world which you know, isn't as open as it could or perhaps should be. Have you, have you found it challenging to sort of push a transparency agenda within the world of philanthropy? Much less challenging than I thought. Um, I thought that if I came in and started talking about open data standards, it would be a non-starter. And there's a reason why that's not how I start any conversation on it. But actually, I've been really deeply pleasantly surprised at how responsive the foundation sector has been. And when I talk about the benefits to grantees, to applicants, to new donors just starting out, I've had a fantastic response from foundation leaders, um, hence the fact that we've got so many foundations now publishing and we've captured over £24 billion worth of grants to the data standard um, after just a couple of years' work. I think the responses that have come to me have often been, no one's asked us for this information before. We didn't realize that people were interested. And often if you're in your own silo, you don't realize how hard it can be from the other side. I think I'd love it if every senior foundation staff member had to work as a fundraiser for a few years just to get that experience of, of how hard it can be to find this information. But it's, it's been a really positive response, not seeing it as a transparency exercise or a tick box, but a real desire to improve the learning environment within this field. It's very encouraging to hear that. And it certainly seems like the, the direction of, of travel. And uh, do, you, do you think there are, I mean, one of the things I think is fascinating about transparency, um, I've done quite a lot of work over the last few years looking at um, the possible applications of blockchain um in in sort of philanthropy and civil society and i mean for there's obviously we're at a point where there's quite a lot of justifiable skepticism about it but i i sort of maintain there is something at its core that's quite interesting and and one of the things there is the potential for really radical transparency almost up to a kind of 100% and and actually as soon as you start to think about transparency in in those terms one of the questions is do you necessarily want transparency to that degree because you can start to think of quite a lot of scenarios in which that degree of transparency is quite dangerous and actually inadvertently um, 
making public, for instance, the identity of groups or individuals in receipt of certain donations, particularly in, in you know, when in a development context could be really problematic. Um, do you find you have to kind of take into account some of those challenges and, and bring a bit of nuance to the conversation? Absolutely. But if the conversation starts not with, we must be transparent in all cases, but how is it going to help? How is it going to help me as a donor to do my job better? Or how is it going to help the charities that I want to support in the first place? And then there's a very strong case for it if you start with those benefits. So we fund in our African work, uh, anti-corruption activists in countries where this work is very sensitive. And despite being transparent in all our work, we will make exemptions. Uh, So we have only a couple of times not published a grant we've made. Normally, we publish every single grant, both to our blog, uh, to the 360 Giving Standard and to IATI as well, which is the International Aid Transparency Initiative. Where there's a risk to our grantees, if we talk about their work, then for obvious reasons, we don't. But it's still captured in the data. And we try and say as much as we can, we have funded a project, we're not going to name it, it was for this amount. Um, But I always think that donors who work well with their grantees are the best informed about what's appropriate and not so it's not for me to go to a foundation and say you have to publish 100 percent of everything you do it's to say you know the grantees you work with you know what the risks are to them Uh, make a sensible judgment if you're funding shelters for vulnerable women and the address of the organization is the address of the shelter no you shouldn't publish that but foundation staff know this they know this better than I do so it's about saying let's look at what we have let's look at where the boundaries are but if there isn't a good reason not to publish it why not yeah and that sounds like a an amazing a very sensible approach and um, I mean a kind of question that that links to that in my mind is what what do you see as the benefit for of transparency for beneficiaries or organizations in receipt of the funds because it's it's kind of obvious in some in some sense what the benefit could be for grant makers or for for philanthropists in terms of you know understanding how their money's being used but but on the recipient side do you think there are also benefits to it absolutely yes in fact I think that's the biggest win for me which is you look at any small or medium-sized charity and the sheer amount of time they're having to spend on research to find out where they should apply for money. It's a massive inefficiency, a massive waste in the sector. Um, and I've done this job. This, my, my first job was, was working in a small charity um, and seeing how much time was spent on fundraising and how much time is spent searching websites, printed reports, going through a PDF with a red pen to look at what's been funded in the past to decide whether it's worth doing an application. And then the hours spent crafting an application. We looked at our own statistics uh, for the Indigo Trust and how many applications we were rejecting at the first reading of them, how much time on average people spent writing an application. And we realized that we'd wasted almost three years of charity's time with them writing applications for us that we were never going to fund. And that to me is heartbreaking because that's time they could have spent on delivering the work. So anything that can make that job easier and also benefits me because if I only get relevant applications, I don't have to waste staff time sifting them out and writing polite rejections. 
So I think there's a huge benefit to grantees, to applicants, and anything that can make that job easier is going to lead to a benefit for the whole sector. There's a, another question actually that um, that follows on a bit, as, as well as that sort of case by case inefficiency that you that you get because people are um, doing things like making you know, multiple grant applications without realising that they're you know sort of uh, dead from from the get go. The one of the things that we keep coming back to on this podcast because I'm endlessly fascinated by it is the the challenge, particularly when it comes to policy making around philanthropy, which is that it's an odd thing because it's at one and the same time just a um the the sort of voluntary choices of individuals but then at scale it's also a means for redistribution of wealth at quite a sort of large scale but but the problem you have is that it's um because it's based on those voluntary choices it ends up being quite irrational and kind of not geographically very well distributed or distributed very well by cause so this is supply and demand imbalance do you, is there any sense in the work that you do around data collection and transparency that one of the things that might result from it is is if you, is making philanthropy at scale a bit more rational because at least people have the data to be able to see where their giving fits alongside what everybody else is doing? Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure I'd use the word rational, but certainly better informed. So when I was starting out, I wanted to know both about the problems and the issues that I could focus on, and then also what charities were working on those. And certainly 10, 20 years ago, word of mouth was the only way of doing that. And I've spent a lot of time at donor conferences and charity collaboratives and trying to ask other people what they were doing. And it seems mad to me in a Google age that I can't just ask the question. We can look at, you know, indices of social deprivation or poverty or poor educational results, um, you know, data supporting the sustainable development goals in other countries. Um, We can look at the problems, but it's very hard to see the other side of that. Where are the charities working on the solutions? And so we just don't have the information. So we end up funding organizations that we've heard of or where somebody knew somebody. And that's not rational. But if you can have better information, you can make better decisions. And it's not just about applicants not bothering to apply if they're never going to be funded. It's about applicants having heard of us where we might be a relevant donor. Uh, My trust is relatively small. It's not well known. It doesn't have a big brand. I'd be terrified to think that there are really amazing projects out there that we should be funding, but they've never heard of us. So they're never going to get in touch. So anything that creates a better match is going to help. And then you can start to have collaboration based on data. So we say, I see we're two funders. We're interested in solving this problem in this region. Can we work in tandem? Can we make sure we're not unnecessarily duplicating? Um, This has to become more rational. But at the moment, it's not that it's too emotional. It's just we don't have the information to make those decisions. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I want to be clear. I don't mean rational to be a pejorative term. I just sort sure. of mean it as a shorthand for for what you know what we're talking about there. Um, it also it sort of strikes me in a lot of of what you do that um, your approach to to philanthropy, in a way, as you say, you kind of came to it without a specific idea of a cause that you had a prior attachment to or, or anything like this, and actually ended up focusing more on how you could have an impact on the way in which philanthropy is practiced or kind of wider grant making which is almost a sort of meta approach to to philanthropy um do you, do you find 
you know, it's. Do you think that other philanthropists could also kind of include an element of that into in their philanthropy, or do you think it's sort of particular? It particularly appeals to you, perhaps, because you come from a policy background, and so actually addressing things at at sort of one step up feels natural. Whereas for a lot of people, they still might want to just fund direct services to address the sort of symptoms of causes. That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, I think the only observation I'd make is that the longer anyone has been working in philanthropy, the more they start to observe and note and comment on things which could be done differently. But because it's not a system with a lot of infrastructure, it's not always obvious to people that it is possible to change it. There are a lot of things that haven't really changed since Andrew Carnegie was talking about them. And there's good reason for that. It's because there is huge value to philanthropy. And I, I do believe it's a force for good in this world. But it's not obvious where the levers for change are. And that's one area where it's different to other areas of public policy. Um, you know, Who do you go and talk to in government about what needs to change? And what is the role for government in supporting it? Um Maybe it is uh, my background as a as a civil servant that makes me think about this, but I think it's on the minds of most philanthropists. There's just something about about this sector that hasn't lent itself to these questions for a long time, and anything I can do to to surface them has to help. I was very influenced by going through something called the Philanthropy Workshop, which is a donor education program uh, which takes small cohorts of donors and encourages them to think about being strategic and uh, I was very inspired by other alumni from that group who'd gone on to to have innovations in their philanthropy and and spread them and replicated them so that's probably what planted the thought for me that 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 was worth doing and I've certainly met quite a few other alumni from the philanthropy workshop and it's very notable that they tend to be the ones who do take that sort of strategic focus um and particularly around kind of addressing some of their philanthropy to the business of philanthropy itself um so it's obviously doing doing something right um another thing i I wanted to pick up on because i was looking um obviously in prep for this at some detail on the work that you do with indigo trust and there quite a strong element of how that's described seems to be around the idea of risk funding and the kind of the role of philanthropy in uh in kind of uh, uh, adopting a, a risk-based approach because you know that seems like it's one of the strengths it's often put forward as one of the theoretical strengths of philanthropy but i've heard quite a few people recently say mm, well actually in practice the sad thing is that a lot of philanthropy is a bit too safe and risk averse you know do you see that as an important part of philanthropy and kind of what's your perception of of the wider world of philanthropy at the moment it's definitely something that i do emphasize in the work at indigo It could seem very fair to say that that often fails to live up to this promise, but only, I think, because we're more honest about our failure. I think a lot of foundations and trusts, for good reasons, don't want to talk about failure. They want to praise the extraordinary work of their grantees and the charities they support. But you would look at their body of giving and say nothing they do has ever failed. And that just simply can't be true. I think funders who really value innovation and risk are much more comfortable saying we funded this project and it didn't work and let's talk about why 
So if you look at the body of our grants, you'd say we fail more often. I don't think that's true. I just think we're more willing to talk about the failure and learn from it and move on. Um, and that's a change I would like to see adopted far more widely in the sector. I think it is a strength of philanthropy as opposed to government funding. I think government is, is pretty bad at innovation generally, um, not just our government, all governments, um, and, and is rightly risk averse with public money. Uh, it should be a special advantage of philanthropy that I can take risks with my own money. And hopefully that will lead to positive innovation that can be replicated and scaled and learned from. Um, everything that's proven now was innovative once. Yes, absolutely. And it's certainly, you know, I've got one of my uh, pet things is the, is the history of philanthropy. And it's certainly you look at pretty much any element of the welfare state or any other system of welfare other, uh, elsewhere, and, and there will be some philanthropic thread to it, or it'll you'll be able to trace it back to something that came from from uh, philanthropic origin so no I, I certainly agree on that um in terms of you saying that that role of uh, philanthropy in risk funding um being valuable because it's something that the public sector or the state struggles to do in your own work do you kind of explicitly try and craft exits from the work you're doing um and obviously what i mean by that is just where you funded something and it turns out to be a success and it then requires scaling or replication, do you put some work into making sure that happens or do you just sort of hope that it happens because you've demonstrated the success? Oh, absolutely. It's hugely important for us and certainly doesn't happen just because we hope it will. Um, we're a relatively small donor, so it becomes critical that if a project's succeeding, we can graduate them on to larger donors who can take them to the next stage of growth. So we try and think of where we are in the sort of funding ecosystem. And if a project is going well, what steps can we take to grow the organization to make them ready for larger donors? So we have quite a high risk tolerance, which we can fund people even if they don't have a three year track record of audited accounts. But if we know that someone needs to move on to bigger donors who will have that as part of their due diligence, maybe we can pay for accountancy services marketing services, legal advice, what is it that will help make that grantee ready to move on? And then hugely, we emphasise um, introductions to and networking with that wider pool of donors um, to help our, our grantees graduate on. And that's the biggest success to me is where we can exit because a grantee has grown beyond us. They don't need us anymore, but we work very hard on that. And how, how receptive, you were saying it's sometimes difficult when you're thinking about philanthropy to identify where within a, a government to, to address any sort of policy focus, because there isn't always a sort of central point. But with, with the work that, that you've done there, obviously, one exit might be getting a larger grant takeover, but the, the end at, at sort of true scale will almost always involve government in, in some way. How receptive have you found governments here in the UK or elsewhere to the idea of engaging with early stage philanthropy as a way of finding, you know, the next innovation or what can kind of drive improvements in in uh, public service provision, for instance. I think in our core work at Indigo Trust, it's quite unusual to get a very positive response from government because in several of the countries where we work, we're specifically funding anti-corruption work that 
is aimed at the problems in the government um, and needs to be independent um, and separate from government. Um, I think where we're talking about open data in public services, for example, I think there is more interest from government, from public service officials themselves. And the independence of it coming from the third sector can be helpful. But it, it's sort of a case by case basis. Um, we're quite careful uh, in our approach on that. Um, so it's normally not relevant for it to be taken up and government funded in those countries, uh, whereas it might well be here in the UK. Yeah, I suppose if you're directly funding challenge through civil society to, to the existing government, then it's unsurprising if they're not always that welcoming. No, that's, that's fair exactly. enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another thing actually just um, that's, you know, risk we've kind of talked about a bit as one of the things that is identified as, as at least in theory, a core strength of philanthropy. Um, one of the, the other things that's linked to that is the, the ability to take a longer term view of issues or a longer term approach, particularly when you're talking about endowed philanthropy or foundation philanthropy. Um, but at the moment, there's uh, on the flip side also quite a lot of focus on doing things in the here and now. And there's a you know, strong move towards things like spend down philanthropy. Where where do you kind of stand on that in your your own approach? Do you do you sort of see there being a tension or do you try and balance that across your, your work? I think where I stand on that is is still utterly struggling to work out what the right decision is. I can see the tension and I've heard very good arguments on both sides. I, I appreciate the longer term view of issues and you can certainly point to foundations that have an extraordinary track record over deca decades or in some cases centuries of patient capital and the ability to really stick with an issue and you know there are world problems that will take generations to change. Having said that, I've also seen foundations that that lose their passion and their innovation after a couple of generations or iterations of staff and that are very risk averse and not keeping up with their, their settlers, their original donors' passion and intention. I do think that where there is a living donor, a living settler, you get a huge amount of impetus for change. Um, and to me, that's one of the best cases for spend down, you know, harness the power and the passion of the individual, make as much change as you can in a lifetime and don't assume that that can continue for years and years afterwards. But like I say, I think there are there are good, strong arguments on both sides. Yeah, and and in terms of the that the the sort of focus on giving while living and the the, the benefit there, um, I certainly you know agree in terms of it it being easier to to be more tolerant of risk. And I guess one of the other things that gets flagged up is that the donor then is able to bring you know much wider benefits in terms of you know their their knowledge or business acumen um, to bear as well. Um, one one of the interesting challenges to that, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on um, that I was talking to somebody about the other day, is whether that's actually made the question of the power imbalance in philanthropy that's sort of unavoidably there worse in some ways, because actually the more that donors want to be engaged with their giving and to control it and shape it, obviously there are positives to that. But then on the flip side, there are all these sorts of concerns about whether 
people are giving away money but actually retaining power and they're not empowering the people in receipt of the money do you do you sort of what's your take on that question of the power imbalance and what what you know if do you try and do to to address that in your giving Firstly, I'm just really pleased to be asked about it mm. because for many years I never heard anyone talk openly about the power imbalance that certainly exists and is a problem. I'm actually excited now that I think this conversation is happening more and more and lots of people are thinking about what are tools, what are changes we can use to address that. So it's something we really, really think hard about with Indigo's work, although I'd never say we've got it perfectly, but we're constantly looking to change um and the how do you address that power imbalance between the people with the money and the people who need it i think you're never going to get it perfectly but um we do a lot of little things to try and co-create applications with grantees to try and give them as much space as possible to communicate back honestly to us about what we're doing well and where we could improve um, we try to do a lot on grantee feedback and perception surveys to see where we can improve. Um, I think there's always more we could be doing, but we certainly care about it. I think there's where a new a new area of work is developing. Um, I'm seeing the first examples of user-centred design in grant work. Um, there's some great work at Stanford Design Centre on user-centred design and philanthropy, and we've experimented with it in our own grant making. So we've said we will fund a project with this organisation. We don't know what it's going to be for, but there'll be a user centred design process where the people on the ground with the real expertise will work out what the project needs to be. And we commit to funding that. That's really challenging for the way grant making is set up. Um, and I'm sure we'll stumble many times along the way, but it's exciting to be experimenting with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the the whole area of user centered design is absolutely fascinating in the context of philanthropy. And one one thing actually I'm interested in following on from that is obviously a, a particular area of focus for your grant making is around using technology to to empower people and to kind of drive things like advocacy for for change. Have have you found, or do you think you might find, if you haven't so far, that if you are using uh, approaches like user-centered design and getting people you know, on the grounded communities to kind of design their own solutions, do you think those solutions are less likely to be technology-based ones than, than they would have been if you just come in from the outside? Because I, I have started to hear some skepticism within, even within the world of kind of tech for good about the fact that we're we're going too fast and trying to kind of implement much too complicated technologies when actually you know we should be sort of working with much simpler technologies that actually make sense for for people and communities on the ground do you think that's likely to be a challenge i think that's absolutely the right question and if you come in framing the question as which technology is the solution unsurprisingly you'll get back an answer which says technology is the solution and that might not be the case at all i think it's about making sure that the right people are in the room if you've only got coders and programmers in the room, then technology will magically be the solution. If you've got traditional civic activists, if you've got traditional human rights organisers in the room, then you'll get a much broader sense of what the possible solutions are. And you can then test that with different audiences on the ground. We certainly don't believe technology is always the solution, just that it can play a role and it can often amplify um, and spread work faster than traditional means um it's another area where working 
collaboratively with other donors means you can say, look, we've identified a problem here that has a non-tech solution. Would this be something that you could support rather than just saying, well, it's not tech, so it's not for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, that's that's absolutely the, the right thing. I've kind of um, been in quite a few meetings where you've, you've seen increasingly, I think, sort of really great tech solutions in search of problems that they actually need to be addressing. And that's, I mean, it's both just uh, sort of sad because it's a waste of, uh, you know, intellectual power and, and effort, but also it's frustrating, I think, for people in civil society because it makes technology look like something that isn't actually necessarily that helpful for them so um i do think you know we need to be quite careful um that people don't get cynical before they've given given some of these things a chance to to work and it's as the saying goes if you've only got a hammer then everything looks like a nail (laughs) yeah absolutely um i'm aware that that we're running a a bit long here so i just um wanted to to come back to to ask you a question about something totally different that we touched on the beginning if that's okay which is just um particularly because it's it's unusual for me to have an actual real life uh philanthropist on the podcast (laughs) Um, and certainly you know somebody who comes from such a rich tradition of it i'd just be really interested to to hear you know coming from from the sainsbury family you you said at the start that you know you you quite early on um had the the idea of, of philanthropy introduced into your life what how how much sort of shaping went on through your upbringing and what was the kind of sense you were given of the role of philanthropy and and how you know the responsibilities that come that come with it i think growing up i probably never heard the word um and and children can be remarkably kind of self-obsessed so i probably wasn't thinking more widely that there were the family foundations and I was vaguely aware of what they did but it was never rubbed in my face it wasn't talked about a great deal the family cared far more about giving us a sense that the world isn't perfect and that there are problems out there and I was certainly encouraged from a young age to volunteer with charities so it was actually the charities that were my first exposure to the giving world and I think that's had the most impact on me Uh, because I got to see what it's like working in a small, struggling charity and the extraordinary work that is done throughout the UK tackling problems from homelessness to women's empowerment to adult literacy. Uh, It's it's very hard, I think, to see that kind of work and not be inspired by it. And then to discover a bit later on that I had the opportunity to be involved in it. Um, I felt even more lucky, but a real sense of, you know, crikey i've got to get this right i've 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 got to do the best job that i can at this just to finish off this is probably a totally unfair question but if you could pick one policy or kind of that that you think could help to drive um a stronger culture of philanthropy in the uk what would it be or at least in what kind of broad area would you choose to focus i think for me it's uh two sides of the same coin unsurprisingly i'm going to say from policy terms it's it's 360 giving it's encouraging people to share more information on what they're doing. But the the non-data side of that is about improving the conversation about philanthropy. I love the fact that in the UK, it's not a deeply slick, comms-driven world in philanthropy. It, it is often very private and for good reasons, and it's not, it's not particularly ego-driven. But it can make it very hard for people to talk about their work and to improve it. And I certainly found that very isolating when I was getting started. Um, I longed to be able to join conversations on how to do this job better and what good looks like. 
So I think anything, whether it's donor education, whether it's policy conversations or interaction with government, that surfaces those conversations and allows us to talk about what success and failure looks like can only help all of our work. Great. Well, I just wanted to say thanks again, Fran, for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely uh, fascinating. Um, I wish you all the best with all the work you're doing with Indigo Trust and 360 Giving, and hopefully we'll cross paths again soon. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, thanks again to Fran for agreeing to come on the podcast. Um, It was a really uh, great conversation. I thought we covered an enormous number of really interesting topics there, which I managed to resist the urge to get monstrously sidetracked on on many of them. So it was quite a a good effort of self-control by me there. Um, if you're, I'll put some links in show notes to kind of relevant things um, that I've written or that relate to stuff that we talked about today. Also, some links to um, Fran's work with Indigo Trust and uh, 360 Giving. Um, if you're more broadly interested in the kind of issues we've been talking about here on the podcast, um, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, If you've got ideas for other topics we could cover on the podcast or people I could talk to, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, it just remains to say, like the podcast, subscribe, share with all your friends, and I will see you next time. Bye!